Hello, everyone. Welcome to Twig 254. Today, we've got the three consultants and myself. <laughs> so joining me today is Philip Black, Game Economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Jen Donahoe, Marketing Executive at Jade Inferno Consulting. Howdy, everyone. Eric Kress, Principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. Yo, yo. And you've got me, Laura Taranto, Head of New Games at Big Fish. So... Jen, to kick us off, tell us about an event you went to last week. Yes, I got out of the house, which, first of all, was very exciting to do that when you're a consultant and working from home and your only company is your cats, kind of like Phil. You get a chance to get out in the world. <laughs> Did I harm you in some way? <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I, I love my cats. The event that I went to was a really cool event from Amazon ads. They put on this video game summit in L.A., and they brought together a lot of heavy hitters and marketing and ad folks. Totally not your crowd, Phil. But, you know, it was really interesting to hear all of the different things going on. So the thing about Amazon ads, we usually think of Amazon as, hey, if you're going to use them as a marketing platform, it's Twitch. And I got to hang out with Bill Young, who is the head of Twitch. And they're doing a lot of amazing things. TwitchCon is actually coming up, I think, in a couple of weeks here. But one of the things that was interesting was the Thursday night football team from Amazon Prime showed up. And I'm like, why am I listening to this? Do they not know that the title of this was a video game conference? But what was interesting is that they were talking about how they're seeing success with other game companies, not necessarily sports games, reaching gamers through their platform and how they're being very dynamic and adapting. So this isn't necessarily an ad for them. I just thought this was really insightful. So for game marketers, if you're looking for some new outlets, and yes, this is obviously North America and US focused, but maybe it's just something to consider is live sports a way for you to reach gamers because the cross section of your players actually matches there. So just sharing that little bit of insight. Would this be like the Metacore Pedro ads on Thursday Night Football like that? They actually integrate ads into the show. Oh, wow. So this isn't Amazon ads, but what ESPN just did was they turned the entire football game into Toy Story. So obviously Toy Story, a brand that I worked on, is part of Disney, part of ESPN. And so they changed the entire look of the field. All of the characters looked like they were toys. The background of the game looked like they were in Andy's room. And so there were really just cool different things that are going on to allow you to showcase your brand. Like it's Toy Story, you know, a younger schooling brand. They're trying to bring kids in. So they have a number of the networks do the Nickelodeon integration where you see like the green slime in the end zone and things like that. And then there's just ads that they do inside of the game where they interview the football players or things like that. Sorry, I didn't mean this to go on this long, but it was kind of interesting to just explore it. Just check it out. All right. Speaking of events, this is my last shill. Next Tuesday, October 24th, Games Forum Seattle. I'll be there all day. I'll be in the product track, DOF 25 for 25% off. I believe you need to get your tickets no later than Monday. Phil, you also have a shill today. It's a mega shill. I'm using my one token per quarter. So by the time this cast has been released, it should be on Thursday. The experimentation group will have launched. You're going to be hearing a lot more about this. I, I probably won't shut up about it for another couple of weeks. This is one of the boldest initiatives in gaming. It's made up of David Nelson, who was the former VP of experimentation at King. He was also a past Twig guest. Tom Storr, who is a former product lead at King, also with the experimentation group, and myself. And this comes from the actual experimentation group at King. If you don't know the story, it's incredible. I wish David here were here to tell it. But the basic thesis of this group was to take King's dead games the ones that they no longer had a huge interest in continuing to develop and run crazy stuff on them, run crazy experiments, and then take the learnings from those experiments and push them to the mothership, Candy Crush. So what happens when you remove the ability for payers to pay? What happens when you double prices? Think about things like hard level labeling. So just telling a user that a level is hard that is something that is standard in every single match three game. You can't escape it. That is something that came out of the experimentation group. And we know these things have a huge impact because we have the experimental evidence to show it. We have the receipts, we have the actual A-B test, we have a control group. And things like hard level labeling were enormously successful. And it's really interesting to start to work backwards on, okay, well, why does hard labeling work? And then how do you break that idea? So if you know labeling a level is hard, why not super hard? Why not extremely hard? Why not legendary? 
and you start to see these ideas start to get broken and ultimately they start with experimentation and ultimately you use these experiments to discover what really matters to players. You know, there's a lot of religion, I think, in, in some gaming companies about why certain things are successful. And for the experimentation group at King, it's if you think it's so successful, if you think it's such a core part of why this product is successful, remove it. And if it's as important as you think it is, the game should suffer. So the Saga map in King Games was really important. It was religion. If you look at Novik, who had a piece about Candy Crush's anniversary, they talk about the importance of the Saga map in there. But if it's so important, if we removed it, you should see a drop in KPIs. I don't know, was that the case? I don't think so. I think the experimentation group might have ran that and the Saga map isn't as important as they thought it was, despite it being religion inside of King. And of course, like we see games like Toy Blast remove the Saga map and just have a number on the side of the home screen. So I think we also have some market evidence too. We are not doing actual science in the gaming industry and it drives me nuts. Science is not a Tableau dashboard, it's not a Looker dashboard, it's not a SQL query, it's not data-driven, it's not data-informed. Science is a method. It's a way to acquire knowledge. And that knowledge helped Rose Games just as it did at King. And so what does this experimentation group actually do? Well, David, myself, and Tom, we're going to work with developers for free. Yes, that you heard that right, for free. And what we're going to do is we're going to work with you to develop experiments for your game that ultimately are going to help grow your title. Here's the catch. We are going to share these results publicly. We're going to put on LinkedIn. We'd love to put it on podcasts. We'd love to talk about these experiments, what we're doing, why we're doing them, why they work, why they don't work. Rising tides lifts all boats. And it's time we had this conversation in public about what experiments work, why they're working, and ultimately how science should work in games. This should not happen behind closed doors. Science is best done out in the open. And we've talked to some developers about this. There's, of course, some skepticism. Rising tide lifts all boats. I think that's really important to keep in mind. And I think it was Paul Graham who said, you know, you're much more likely to die by suicide than homicide. So I wouldn't be worried about, you know, your secret experiment leaking to another company. That's not important. What's important is that you help grow your game and ultimately we help increase industry GDP. I, I think we owe it to ourselves as game makers to become masters of our craft and advancing the, the conversation in terms of science is how we can do that. So we have a lot more info on our website. I'm sure there's a million different questions. We encourage developers to apply. We are looking for casual games. We are looking for casual games that have 10K DAU. We have a big FAQ section on our website and we're excited to meet with developers and figure out how this can work in the best possible way. So check it out. It's the experimentation.group. You'll be hearing more about it. I'm sure I'll be talking about it next week. And if you're on LinkedIn, I'm sure we'll get some articles out there. Wow, that was quite a shill. It was a big token. I think you made it rain with all the shilling. <laughs> well, speaking of King, let's talk about the quick hits. Take us away with Microsoft. It's here, the day that we finally stopped talking about the Microsoft Activision merger. Okay, just kidding. This will be the last time, hopefully, that we talk about it. A few research reports to talk about Nico Partners came out with a report about the India game market. It is projected to generate almost a billion dollars, 900 million in 2023, and almost half a billion players. That's growth of 21% year on year for revenue and 12% for the number of players. I'm actually doing a deep dive later this week that's going to show up on the podcast feed with the Google Play partnership team that's focused on India and SEA. And so they show up not exactly with hard numbers, but with a lot of great numbers that really show the opportunity for mobile games in India for certain kinds of folks. So check that out in a few days. I know this is quick hits, but I have to make a comment here. All this shilling on India and third world countries type things, I get it, right? There's opportunities, I think in Africa, et cetera. But then at the same time, this type of report comes out from Nico. They just announced that they're doing some 18% tax on real money gambling type apps, just arbitrarily, right? Which yes. basically destroys the entire business. You cannot survive in that business when you're paying an 18% tax for every transaction or the amount of buy-in is what they end up ultimately doing. And so it's very arbitrary how these rules are set. Buyer beware when you're trying to you know, execute in countries like this because, you know, they cancel PUBG, right? Because of some issue with China, right? Mm -hmm. They throw out these laws and rules and taxes that don't make sense. Actually, frankly, I think it makes sense to tax <laughs> <laughs> those type of games, but they could tax anything, right? Yeah. They could just say, oh, well, 
you know, gotcha's bad for the kids, right? So let's tax that at 30%. You know, it's not all like rainbows and unicorns. You got to be still very careful about how you approach these type of markets because everything's very arbitrary. All right, moving on. Sorry. Yes. No, agreed. It's not rainbows and unicorns on everything, but just a couple of things. Number one is the tax is only on RMG or real money gambling. So think of that as gambling apps, not the free-to-play business. Number two is we ourselves have unexpected things pop up like the Unity runtime fee coming to hit, you know, 70% of our industry. That wasn't a government thing, but it was an industry thing. Or the egregious actions of Apple with this fucking IDFA. Or that, right? Like, so these unexpected issues, I think are worldwide. And this just happens to be from the government. So we talk about a bunch of these things in the podcast because they say, you know, like, listen, that did happen but they are working very closely with the government to make sure that the rest of the market is not as impacted. Lots going on there. All right, continuing on. So the other new research report out from NewZoo is they go into some insights about the generational gaming appeal. So a few top takeaways, go download the report from them, but 94% of Gen Alpha are game enthusiasts. I think we would all say no shit if anyone has a kid. They're pretty much born with a mobile game phone, playing mobile games in their hands. 50% of Gen Alpha, Gen Z, and Millennials play on more than one platform, so cross-platform is a thing. 61% of Millennials spend money on games. Great for all of us who make our money from this industry. 70% of Gen A watch and play games, so they both watch whether Twitch or YouTube. And then, you know, for marketers and for brands, this is a good one. 50% of Gen A, Z, and millennials discover new brands while gaming. So a little bit to my earlier point about, hey, they're watching sports and discovering brands. You can also showcase your brand in games and figure out that way. Moving on, Exola has acquired a bunch of new streaming tech companies to bolster their commitment to supporting creators, offering tools to streamline live streaming, audience management, and revenue optimization. And then the PlayStation Slim is coming. The PS5 is losing some weight ahead of the holiday season. I must be on Ozempic. And the PlayStation 5 Slim was announced. It's not the PS Pro we were looking for, Chris. I think you dropped this in here because you want a hint for a holiday item. I hear you. We'll make it happen. Speaking of downsizing. Speaking of downsizing. <laughs> good one, Phil. All right. Layoffs. There was a report that basically said 6,100 game jobs have laid off in 2023 with 17 companies issuing layoffs. Just for context, because I think 6,000 is actually nothing. <laughs> Let's be real. The, the amount of people in this industry is absolutely massive. And I just had the number of now I've lost it. It is a drop in the bucket when you look at the growth, but it is still awful for so many of our friends and colleagues who have been let go and these companies are closing. It's Definitely the economy flexing. I understand that, but the reality of it is it's like less than 2% of the workforce for the U.S. only, right? So I imagine it's less than a percent of the overall people that work in the industry, max, you know? So we went through a super boom in both tech and including gaming, and this is what happens is that there's an adjustment. The pendulum swings back. LinkedIn announced another 668 people, 3% of its workforce, which that's interesting. I think LinkedIn's doing pretty well. But within Microsoft, I'm sure it's just more of an adjustment. The most interesting one is Roblox. Just wrote a note to employees yesterday. And I'm not going to do this justice because I kind of just read through it. But fundamentally, basically said, look, if you don't want to work three days in the office, you're no longer welcome at this company. <laughs> but they did it in the most benevolent way possible. I mean, it was like it was really well done how they've done this because they've just mandated it. And you have to decide by January 6th whether or not you want to be part of Roblox anymore and work three days a week. So in essence, the way I look at this very cynically is that this is a stealth layoff of some sort to get rid of some of the dead weight, perhaps, that's not producing. There's lots of slack activity talking about this, but I, I think this is a really smart way to do it. And then they also have a very nice severance. So yeah, I think it's really clever and very nice the way they're doing it. But it is a layoff, basically, in my opinion. Again, for PR and comms, it was a masterclass in message delivery. It was really well written. It was empathetic. I think I understand that they never said that they were going to be 100% remote for all time. So I think everyone knew it was coming. And they're generous, right? So the way they went about it, if you have to deliver bad news, this is the best possible way you can do it. 
Did they cite a reason for the return to office? They did. I forgot who actually wrote it, but he gave a couple of examples of, you know, creativity and innovation is probably the biggest thing that they said is being able to have the energy to do that in person really sparked a bunch of new ideas. Zoom fatigue is a real thing, they claimed, and that they are at a phase where they really want to get creative juices flowing and innovation going. So that was what I took away from the beginning. Yeah, I hate to agree with Mishka said this on the Slack is like, I have to imagine that this is somewhat scientific, but it makes sense. And I've kind of been saying this since the beginning. It's like, for these type of companies, you got to be working in an office with a bunch of people. It's collaborative, you know, like it's not something you can do isolated in your home in the basement, like us consultants. Hey, speak for yourself. I got my cats. (laughs) Me too. So what they did say is some number of jobs and functions would still be remote. You know, obviously the people who aren't in those creative positions. And so they clarified that too and said like, if you're part of customer service or if you're a data team, it's okay to not come back. The key engineers, you know, those people that are fucking untouchable <laughs> can go stay working from home, you know, that have all the stock that have been there for like 20 years. Yeah, those guys could stay home because uh, we need you guys, right? That kind of thing. The rest of the rock and file, get your ass back in the office. <laughs> it's only Tuesday through Thursday. Did I say that? That's what I'm seeing. Moving on. All right. Games. <laughs> A few pieces of game news. Kudos to mobilegamer.biz for a lot of this. EAFC Tactical is in pre-order, which is due 2024. Fashionverse, Laura, you're going to love this game. Fashionverse, Fashion Your Way from Tilting Point is also in pre-order. Dungeon Hunter 6 is out worldwide from Chinese publisher Goat Games on the Gameloft franchise. Yes, Chris. Oh, this was a Chinese game. That makes all the sense in the world because those guys have been screwing up that franchise for decades, you know, and now the, the game is like super complex and crazy Chinese. I was like wondering. Oh, no wonder they didn't even make it. God damn it. This might be something interesting for us to talk about. It seems like Ubisoft has shifted their strategy on a bunch of their games to go and partner with Chinese developers. They are still doing some themselves, but... The Assassin's Creed Jade game that I keep talking about, I think, is done with part of Tencent Infinite. Dude, they they sold out to the devil, right? (laughs) They took a bunch of cash from Tencent in order to make games for them because they were running out of money. So it was like this cash grab of a couple hundred million dollars to license all their properties to Tencent. Well, cash grab because they can't do it right themselves, right? Well, yeah, don't get me started on that. But yeah, I don't know. But you're selling your crown jewels in order to like pay off your debts, right? But by the way, they're separate companies now, Gameloft and Ubisoft. Yeah, sorry, my bad. I wasn't very French-minded with both of those, and they reminded me of that. Okay, Clash of Clans and Clash Royale are now playable on PC through the Google Play Games beta in select countries, Canada, Chile, and Singapore. Light a candle, Minecraft is turning 15 years old and has sold over 300 million copies. Friend of the pod Dirty Bit from Norway just launched Fun Run 4 on mobile, and it's topping the free download charts. So congrats to Annette and the team for a great launch. Oh, Chris is shaking his head. Hey, a little baby developer in Norway hit top of the download charts, and most of it's organic. I'm actually asking her if she wants to do a pod because I want to know how she did it. Very interesting stuff. Okay, Mortal Kombat Onslaught for mobile is out. Got my pre-order notification. It's an action strategy team RPG from Warner Brothers. Spider-Man 2 launches this Friday on PlayStation, October 20th, and it's looking like a game of the year contender. A lot of the videos look very cool. I don't have a PlayStation. I know I just admitted that I'm an Xbox person, but this game might make me finally make the leap and have both. Ubisoft's Call of Duty-style shooter, X Defiant, delayed indefinitely. I think we mentioned this already, but they discovered some inconsistencies in the game experience that need to be addressed before launch. Ooh, what's that code for? Like, this isn't working is what that's code for? (laughs) And that wraps up quick hits. Sorry, it wasn't as quick, but there's a lot to get through. So I want to do a very quick update, larger than a quick hit, but not a full topic, on Niantic's game Monster Hunter Now. came out about a month ago. The good thing about Niantic is that when you're kind of in a category of your own, when you're doing games that are not truly games, kind of like more geolocation, it's difficult to benchmark. So just had a quick look at the numbers. I think this is the surprise to no one. 
Biggest countries for this game, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, US are the top revenue countries. 70% of the revenue comes from Japan. That number has not changed. US has 50% of the downloads, while Japan only has 13, so it's doing very well in Japan. As a comparison, Pokemon Go, about 20% of revenue comes from Japan over the last six months. 40% comes from the US, so the mix is a little bit different here. Is this going to be a top game in Japan? I would throw my cards to probably not. I think the RPG pluses tend to top the charts. I don't see this knocking any other games out of the top. My biggest question mark, and I know it's doing well from a revenue perspective in Japan, is for me, monetization is a big question mark. There wasn't much to buy. It was between storage, because you need a lot of stuff to upgrade your armor and weapon, quick rundown of the game, Monster Hunter, you are basically walking around looking to hack and slash monsters, and then you get stuff to upgrade your weapons to take on bigger monsters and bigger challenges, and then you upgrade your monster level. So things to buy, storage for all the stuff you need to do the upgrades, healing products, and range extenders, which I found very ironic because it kind of defeats the purpose of having the player walk around, which has always been kind of Niantic's, so we want you to get out and play. Well, now you can pay to sit where you are and get a larger range to get more stuff. What was interesting is that they started adding special powers from upgrades from weapons. You can one-shot certain monsters, which means faster upgrades, faster power, but to me, this was systemically structured like Pokemon Go. The game and the goals feel a little bit small and repetitive. I'm hoping they expand it a little bit. I'm not convinced they designed this in a way that pushes for incentivizing finding monsters like they did, kind of like naturally comes with Pokemon Go. And honestly, if I have to fight one more Jagras or Shamos, I'm going to cry of boredom. So my take. Eric? The game's obviously killing it in Japan. You know, 1.5 million downloads and 20 million in revenue. And the revenue seems to be holding. And you also have to remember that Dragon Quest Walk was a very successful game only in Japan with the Dragon Quest franchise with the similar type, you know, location-based stuff. So it's also doing a little bit in Hong Kong and Taiwan, but U.S. is relatively small, like only about 900,000 downloads and 3 million in revenue. So clearly this is not going to scale in the U.S., but it could continue to do reasonably well in Japan because it's such a big franchise. And frankly, this is the IP that makes the most sense to me compared to like Jurassic Park, Pikmin, and Harry Potter. <laughs> but for Niantic, I think this is a solid single, not another strikeout to use baseball reference for you Europeans. But it's going to do what it does in Japan. That's about it. I don't have a lot to add. I played it a little bit. Oh, it just it feels so dated. It feels like I'm in the Wayback Machine. The kudo I would give them is it looks like this one launched the best when you go in Data AI and line up all the launches. Even when I looked at Jurassic World Alive and The Walking Dead, our world, so even a couple of the quote, like AR geolocation games from other companies. So kudos to them. Again, like if you're going to pick a franchise, this is probably one of the last ones that makes sense in terms of a core fantasy fit. The only other thing I want to talk about is like, I think we should stop calling these AR games because it's really all about geolocation. Yeah. And the AR, like, stop it. Just Stop with AR because it's not working. It's not drawing people. Just tout that this is a get out and play geolocation game and build on that. That's just kind of my observation on this. Let's look at the graveyard just for a moment of Niantic. It is it is full right now. They're going to need to buy some more real estate. Peridot, NBA All World, Marvel World of Heroes, Harry Potter Unite, Transformers Heavy Metal, Catan World Explorers. Wow, it is a huge graveyard that they have piled up. And it took them this many games to figure out what Pokemon Go exemplified. Exploration and collection. The IP itself. You think back to episode one of Pokemon, Ash Ketchum leaves his home to go on an adventure to collect them all. So you immediately have the adventure and you immediately have the collection. He waves to his mom. You see Mr. Mime in the house. He's got his Pikachu on his back. Regions also play like a really strong role in Pokemon. I don't think we should forget that either. Geography really matters. In many ways, the show is defined by the regions that Ash is going to. And they finally have figured out an IP that has elements of this. Monster Hunter is about slaying monsters from wild places and collecting the loot that's there. It's mind-blowing that they took this fucking long to figure out what the formula was from Pokemon Go. I hope that this is a message to Neantech's creative directors to find more of these IPs. You know, off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure how many more are out, but I think that really comes back to the IP of exploration and collection. Find an IP that has those two things, and I think there might be some more hits for Neantech in store. 
Ooh, and then iterate. I want them to do something other than take the formula of the systems of Pokemon Go, figure out what the next level is, what's working, and then make it better. Better IP, and then iterate on those systems. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games supercharging the gaming landscape this episode is brought to you by data ai yes they were called app annie back in the day but let's not talk about that let's talk about how data ai is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence and data ai does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide what we here at deconstructor fund really like is data ai's game iq tool it's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. All right, let's move to another game. Warcraft Rumble now has an official worldwide release date. It is November 3rd to coincide with BlizzCon. I'm sure the Diablo Immortal guy from a couple years ago is already rearing his IEP engine. It follows a soft launch period starting in August across the Nordics and Canada. It comes over a year after Warcraft Rumble was announced way back in May 2022. If you look on data.ai, currently it has around $3 revenue per download on a quarter of a million installs. Again, this launched in August, so it hasn't had a lot of time to grow revenue yet. This game is huge. There is so much going on in Warcraft Rumble. We're definitely not going to be able to cover it all. I expect to talk more about this game as it goes into release. I guarantee you that there's going to be an endless series of blog posts deconstructing every system in this game. There are so many new systems, so many mechanics. And whatever the criticisms are with this title, it is definitely a new paradigm, just as we saw with Marvel Snap. There's a lot to analyze. There's a lot to talk about. The Empire struck back. HD developers are doing interesting things on mobile again. They don't know what the playbook is. They don't know what the paradigm is. They're creating it from scratch. And if we think way back to Twig 181, this was in May 2022, Adam Telfer, the former host of Deconstructor Fun, he described the problem space as the game was announced and he did a really great job. He was concerned about content bifurcation. There are multiple factions in this game with multiple campaigns. Am I only going to pick one fraction and try to max out that particular faction? Collection width, you know, how large are these deck sizes? It seemed like they were going to be smaller than Clash Royale. And he was also concerned about the systems for incentive collection. You know, if they're really going in a PVE direction, what am I going to be able to do? How am I going to need more units? In a PVP system, usually I need more units to keep up with the meta. And then he has one final concern, which is a single currency economy they would only have gold, which they had announced. So I played this game a little bit. And Phil, I'm going to look to you to do more of the analysis than what I can provide. But there are aspects of it I really liked. 
The campaign is very puzzly. It reminded me a bit of Clash Quest in that you have an objective, you have a specific monster that you have to take down that has uh, specific powers. There's a map that you have to figure out what units and how you're going to place the units, how you're going to tackle this map. That part is puzzly and fun. I think from an audience perspective, you're now leaning a little bit into casual core where you, you might actually get more of an audience from players that normally would not play this game. There's a puzzle aspect where if you don't like the PvP and the stress of the PvP, you can totally lean into the campaign. There are multiple different ways to play your hand. I don't think the balancing's quite right. First impression, I liked it. I could follow it. I understood it. The only thing is it feels a little bit dated. That's the only thing. I, I can't put my finger exactly on it, but this Warcraft Rumble felt a little bit to Clash Royale as kind of Gwen's getaway feels to Lily's Garden. It just feels a, a, a little bit dated and that might be in the look and feel less of the systems but i would look at that i'm not so sure about that i don't think it's dated at all i think it's i think it's pretty fresh and normally people have come out and said oh this is blizzard's version of clash royale and i think it's much closer to an rts probably like command and conquer rivals than it is clash royale and there's two parts of the core that blizzard has innovated on and is really betting the new design space on one of which is pve and the other is the map design. So the map design is the thing that I think is gonna hit people most immediately, which is that there is a scrolling vertical map. So you aren't gonna see the entire battlefields when you play a battle in the game like you would with Clash Royale. You actually need to use your thumb to scroll up and down the map. And so when you have longer maps, that means that potentially you can have more units on the field because it, you know, if you, it will take time for them to get to, a, for the units to transverse the map. They added more conflict points along this map too because they have so much more real estate. So units can mine mana or energy that you use to summon units. There's real-time elements on this map, like a switch. So you can move a unit from one lane to another by tapping a element on the map. There are meeting points. So when you progress through the maps, you can unlock places to deploy your troops further and further into the map and much closer to the enemy. And the units itself also play with map design. So some of the units are called unbounded and you can deploy them anywhere on the map. Whereas in Clash Royale, you can only deploy in your half of the battlefield. So they're doing a lot on the map design side to innovate. And then of course, like there's PvE. And this is another huge shift. They just added PvP to the game two weeks ago. And the core of PvE is bosses, which forms a lot of the campaign. Each of the bosses has a unique puzzle so you'll have one boss that might throw barrels down the map. And so you might need to figure out what are the units that can dodge those barrels? How could I use the switches I was just talking about earlier to dodge the barrels? Uh, maybe I play some tank units. There's a lot of puzzle solving that comes from the bosses and each of the mechanics that the bosses provide. And they've done a lot with the mode design, including the campaign to address a lot of Adam's valid concerns. So when we think about the content treadmill of a PVE game, we have players consuming a lot of content very rapidly. And of course, PVE content tends to be more linear. Whereas in PVP, the PVP aspect of the game is the content that people are consuming. That, that search for equilibrium, that, that search for the winning combination, that usually is the content that you're consuming in a PVP game. So PVE, you have to consume more linear content. And so they've added and remixed a lot of different modes. They have one called Arclight Surge, which uses modifiers, which are very cheap to run on the back end. Like you might have units that are 30% faster for that match. They have dungeons, which is an attempt at a roguelike in which you are facing bosses, but between the different rounds, you might have a modifier that you can use and you can collect these modifiers in between the rounds. And of course the modifiers are, are from a random selection. They have a bunch of different ways they're playing with a series of modes to stretch, remix and redo content. All of these modes matter because they gate different things. I think that's really important too. So the thing that was clear to me is that Blizzard designers want you to play all the different modes because I need to play the different modes to get a currency that's tied to that mode and that currency that's tied to that mode upgrades a particular thing and I need that particular thing to be upgraded because I want to use it in the other mode. So even if I'm not interested in that dungeon mode I was just talking about, that dungeon mode is going to give me something specific and that specific thing is something that I might want to use with the campaign. So I really need to play the entire loop. I really need to consume the entire game if I want to have a great experience with Warcraft Rumble. The design is huge when it comes to incentivizing wide collection. 
Like I said, you're going to have to play all these different modes and they're all going to incentivize you to have a different collection of characters. That dungeon mode we were just talking about, you might only be able to use certain heroes for that dungeon mode on certain days. When you play these boss battles, you're going to need certain decks that are going to be more advantageous than other decks. They're doing, they're doing a whole lot here to stretch roster demand. They're really leveraging PVE in a really exciting way to get you to collect a wide variety of heroes, a wide variety of units. I think they've checked this box with vigor. They clearly identified this problem ahead of time. So I was going to ask you about monetization, but you already answered it. One of the things that I struggled with is the puzzles were the best part. I loved solving the puzzles of this game. I highly recommend it. It was super fun. What I wanted to do was upgrade, and I ran out of coins to spend because I could not upgrade enough. Like I was like, I want to buy coins to upgrade my units, and I actually can. It was pushing me for a wider variety of characters, which I was like, I don't want this. I'm resisting this. So then now you're going into that's how they're planning to monetize. The different modes requiring the different types of characters that you then have to buy. So normally, when you've done this long enough, you try to point out immediately all the problems that you're going to see with the game, and I, and I think that's totally fair. I think there's also something that PvE solves, which Clash Royale has struggled with, which is a 50% win rate in a PvP game. That is brutal, and that is where a lot of the frustration comes from in PvP games, is that you are generally going to have an average win rate of 50%. And when you have PvE, you can give players more units of success, and people like to win. You can have an infinite win rate against a computer it doesn't have feelings. So I'd also like to point out, like, PVE can also be a solution. It's not always just a problem space. Both of those designs have costs and benefits associated with them. Any other thoughts and takes? The numbers look actually pretty good. Like I have to admit, like they're holding up revenue, you know, in Canada, Australia, if you take out all the, like the Philippines and the other third world countries and stuff, you know, it looks really solid. This is going to outgross Marvel Snap. I think the Blizzard PMs won. I think they beat the game designers. I think Diablo Immortal boldened them. I think Diablo Immortal was like, oh shit, the brand can survive and no one gives a shit. It's just angry Redditors. I think that's emboldened them. And this update two weeks ago, they're going deeper on the monetization stuff. Yeah, this is very not Blizzard. So the people that are working on this are clearly kind of on the mobile free-to-play school versus the old Blizzard school. It looks promising. It looks like a better version of Clash Royale, perhaps, in terms of monetization. They kind of have this bastardized loot box design called the shop grid, and we'll definitely be hearing more about that. I, I guarantee you're going to see a lot of deconstructor articles popping up about it. When the game releases, I'm sure we can do a special segment on it. But this shop, if you get a chance to watch YouTube videos, is a very unique take on a loot box design that I could only imagine Blizzard coming up with. So just to be clear, it's doing like almost $4 an install in soft launch in Canada. Since August. Exceptional. And so the question is, how much is UA going to be for a title like this? Is the brand going to actually improve CPIs? I, I don't know. But it looks like it's promising. Kudos to these guys. I think it just needs prettier art. Oh, you don't like the art? No. I am actually with you, Laura. <laughs> I would take a Supercell game over this any day. Love the puzzles. It's super fun. But I said before, it looks a little dated. I think they can, if they did an art pass, I think that would, whoop, I think it would help it a lot. It looks like Warcraft 3. And when I mean Warcraft 3, I mean like literally Warcraft 3. Yes. If that was launched today. Well, I'm glad that you guys like it because Microsoft just spent $69 billion to acquire it. <laughs> Let's get into that story. <laughs> hey, game devs. Are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity Game Framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, 
the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Finally, this deal is done after what? What was it? Six, 15 months or something crazy, right? So there was an article, obviously, everywhere, but in Reuters, Microsoft has acquired Activision. Bobby is out the door by the end of the year. UK finally approved the deal because Microsoft sold the streaming rights to Ubisoft. FTC is still challenging, but the experts basically say that the impact is primarily going to be incremental concessions in the future and nothing you know, that material. Again, they have no real teeth here. The UK authorities, quote, is the new deal will stop Microsoft from locking up competition in the burgeoning cloud gaming market. I added burgeoning. As this market takes off, preserving competitive prices and services for UK cloud gaming customers forever, which is absolute freaking nonsense. But thank you, UK authority. So deal's done. Now we can stop talking about it. My take here is that, look, again, this is a very bad deal for the industry as a whole. I've been pretty consistent on this since the very beginning of this. Subscriptions and gaming will devalue content, create perverse incentives to build lesser experiences on the platform and ultimately hurt third parties. And I think there will be like a before and after <laughs> Microsoft Activision type thing when it comes to this, these particular issues. But I did get this wrong because over the time, and there, there's so many flippity floppities going on, but once the UK basically said that they were not going to approve this, I thought it was kind of over. And I was getting a lot of feedback from that point. And that was kind of where I got it wrong, right? My original assumption, again, was that from the very beginning, right when it was announced, my original assumption was based upon the lawyers that we talked to on the podcast, which basically said the only people that could block this deal were the UK and EU. And they would likely be the ones that would hold this thing up. And that was definitely true. And what he also said was the FTC has absolutely no legal authority to block this sort of transaction given the nature of it and the laws that are on the books. And despite Linacon's mission to end all acquisitions and mergers in tech, the laws of the land do not support that effort on her part. So that's why once the UK kind of blocked this deal, I thought it would they would never back down, right? Because they spent all this time and effort trying to build a case against it and they shut it down. But to my surprise, after the FTC lost their case, which was inevitable, the UK basically conceded, and that's where I kind of got this one wrong. So ending on a possible positive note, because I just do want to hope at least that this will actually be good for the industry and not terrible as I anticipate. The bull case here is that by offering a subscription, this opens up the market to a broader audience, right? So hopefully attracting a broader demographic. Because as I've said many times on the podcast, one of the biggest challenges for PC and console is that the demographic has basically been stuck for decades. It's grown on the margins, don't get me wrong, both geographically and somewhat age-wise. But you know, games like Fortnite probably expanded it a bit. But it's basically 18 to 44-year-old male, mostly men, for decades. About 200 million total addressable market for consoles, and then another couple hundred million probably for PC, but that's a different audience altogether. So for console, if Microsoft can grow the addressable market by bringing a better, more friendly mass market subscription type thing, and also, in theory, bring the content that would attract that audience, this could be actually really good for the industry over the long term, potentially. However, Call of Duty and Blizzard are not it at all, right? That is not the content that's going to bring games to the masses. King is almost irrelevant, right? Because they have nothing on console PC and not likely to move their content onto PC or console. It seems like a completely separate business for them. So... What I'm hoping is that Microsoft figures out some kind of recipe, some kind of formula to build content. And, you know, like one of the things that we were hearing is that, you know, Guitar Hero might be coming back, you know, like Toys of Life, like real like mass market content is what we really need to expand the console business and keep this thing going. But ultimately, I think this subscription type thing is going to be bad for the industry over the long term. What a roller coaster of a year, actually almost two years for this story. What's interesting is it feels like we actually landed in status quo land. So with keeping Activision Blizzard kind of separate in its own entity, you know, Call of Duty is not changing for 10 years, at least. King is going to king 
and they're going to keep bringing that mobile revenue. So all the Microsoft bosses can now say, look, we've got some mobile revenue, guys. We're, like, we're in mobile, that huge platform that we've been not really looking at. What I'm worried about a little bit to a point that we talked about at the beginning around the number of jobs in the industry are layoffs in the marketing and publishing teams. You know, these folks are near and dear to my heart. So the outcome of mergers typically like this is a duplication of central services and functions if you're not on a product team. So if I'm in the powers that be, I'm looking at the Xbox marketing team and the Activision marketing and publishing teams, finance insights, all of these central teams and saying, hmm, do we really need both of these guys? In many cases, yes. Like those of us that are on these teams are like, oh my God, I'm already stretched so thin. How could you think about getting rid of us? And I'm sure there's a lot of folks, instead of spending time, Chris, working on new ideas or working on how do I justify my work so I don't get laid off. One of the things that I give advice to people on if you're in a central team is to try to get on a product team. There's a little bit of a sneeze guard if you're on a product team. You're kind of shielded from layoffs if you can have your product folks kind of put in a good word for you and avoid the layoff and redundancy hatchet that comes a swing in when you're on one of those teams. So my last kind of topic on this and absolutely shameless speculation is about Bobby K. So now that he's done at the end of 2023, what is he up to next? So I actually want to throw in Unity to this conversation. Does he go to Unity? Or is Frank Jabot, who's at Zynga, who got acquired by Take-Two, is he maybe a contender for this? Or maybe Adam from AppLovin? So I really want to actually set up like a fantasy Unity CEO draft and actually maybe one for Activision too. This is going to be my next 125,000 LinkedIn post after my EA says F you to FIFA post. <laughs> Just a little, you know, shameless plug for that LinkedIn post after you had your amazing one. I think we're reaching the masses, Chris, on LinkedIn. So anyway, yeah. in the past, we talked about Unity needing a wartime CEO, which I loved. Like that was just a brilliant take on where they are. Someone who understands the game industry, they understand developers making games, they know how to focus on technology and services. So maybe going after Frank is my fantasy draft Unity CEO pick. Who's your top pick? Frank for Unity, huh? I think he checks those boxes. That's interesting. I was like, I thought you were talking about Frank for Activision, like at Frank taking over for Bobby, which actually makes a little bit more sense to me. That's true. But yeah, no, Frank could do it for Unity. Okay, okay, I'll switch it up. He's a build to grow. He's just like JR. I think Adam should take over for Unity, <laughs> which would be devastating for the company. I apologize for all your Unity people out there. Like if Adam took over, they would just cut and burn. But the dude is gangster. Anybody turn that company around, it's Adam. But I actually do think that Frank taking over for Microsoft Studios might be a good spot for him. You know, like a senior leadership position for Activision Blizzard. And yeah, I think that makes sense. I think Frank's always wanted to be like a CEO of a big company. So that's not quite the same thing. It's kind of a step down from being a CEO, but still a big job. And it's in what he loves, which is core games, or at least he used to love that. I don't understand, like, wh why would you need someone to run Activision Blizzard King? I mean, it's not even one company. It's literally just a portmanteau of the three different companies. Like, those are all just going to be separate verticals inside of Microsoft. Why do you need someone to unite that? Like, Activision is not Activision. It's just Call of Duty now. Blizzard has always been Blizzard, and King is always going to be King. Like, it's just three separate things now. So this is a topic, right? Like, do they keep it together as it is and find a new leader? And by the way, another person to think about leading that in Yoast from Unboxing predicted Sarah Bond, who's corporate VP of Xbox. Finally, having a woman lead a division like as powerful as Activision could be amazing. Plus, she's a person of color. Like, this is just fantastic. And I don't know that Activision will world well enough to know if there's a game of succession going on under Bobby. But, you know, there's one thing is to leave it as is and just find somebody like a Frank, like a Sarah to come in and lead that. Or you have people just manage the parts, eliminate that layer and have them report in to fill. I think Bobby was reporting into Phil as part of that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, especially with the culture of the company. I think many of you have been at companies where you change the leader 
And all of a sudden, the culture and the way that people think about their job is very different, right? So at Riot, they just had a leadership change, or it's happening soon, where they hired from within or promoted from within. So Dylan is taking over for Niccolo, who has been the CEO for a very long time. Because in Riot culture, if you were to bring an outsider to head up that company, there would probably be a revolt. You mean there would be a riot? Uh, That's a good one, Phil. Sorry, continue. Oh, that was a good one. Well, at Hectivision, (laughs) what's interesting is because of the toxic workplace issues that they've been having, it actually might be a good time to bring in kind of someone fresh and new to set them on the right path, which is why I think Sarah Bond might be a really good option of like, okay, hey, we're going to get past this old legacy. We're going to, you know, really update the culture. We're going to move it forward. And so these are things that I think we have to consider as they go forward and think about how do you take and grow Activision into Microsoft. And by the way, Microsoft doesn't put up with the shit that went on at Activision. And so that's probably one of the reasons why Bobby, you know, is going to take a leave at the end of the year. Plus, I mean, I think he gets like a $400 million payout as a result of the deal, three or 400, something like that. It's just absolutely crazy. But I don't know. What do you guys think about them breaking it up or keeping it? Just to answer Phil's question quickly is that like managing creatives, again, is the hardest part of this business and managing teams that are building games and keeping them on the right track is absolutely critical, right? And so the more leadership positions that you have, like those people are impossible to find. So like you want to have people in place that can manage these type of processes, right? So what I don't think is that you basically have these standalone entities running themselves, right? Because then they're just going to do what they want to do. They're not going to be pushed in any direction besides the direction that they want to go into, which is maybe what Blizzard wants or King wants or even Call of Duty guys want. That makes sense to me. I guess what I'm pointing out, though, is that there's no unifying element between Activision, Blizzard, King. That means that you need one person to manage those three entities. They're just random. They're ugly bedfellows. Yeah, all right. You got to manage the managers, right? Like you got to get people managing these guys that are going to do whatever the fuck they want, right? Like the goals of Microsoft are different than the goals from Blizzard, right? And so these goals from Microsoft need to be communicated through executives that are then going to push that down on the rest of the troops, right? And so this is what's going to destroy it all. And this is why when everyone starts talking about Disney acquiring EA, I'm telling you, EA would get fucking annihilated by that transaction. Like it would be over, right? And so we see what mismanagement looks like. We, you look at Ubisoft, like if you just look at you, the entire history of Ubisoft, this is what happens when you don't have a good centralized management of studios and product decisions, right? Embracer. <laughs> well, Embracer, yeah, was set up without that layer, right? That creates absolute disaster, right? So anyway, my point here is they need managers to manage managers, right? And those are the hardest people to find that are really good at Shepard, you know, people like Shepard that used to work mm. at Zynga and EA. Like he's long retired in Florida, like counting his millions. And I still hasn't created a game as far as I know. Those are the type of people that need to manage it to fulfill the desires and the strategies of the corporation, right? Microsoft, right? This is not about gaming. This is about Microsoft, right? So what does Microsoft want? That's what needs to be done by the rest of the organization. Right? And so, and that's going to be the biggest friction moving forward. Speaking of friction moving forward and desperation, a Bloomberg piece has come out called Has Bob Iger Lost the Magic? Sources speaking to the outlet say executives under current CEO Bob Iger want him to perform a bolder transformation of Disney's video game division. I don't know if that's actually a real thing if Disney has a video game division, but rather than license out properties like Marvel and Star Wars, it should buy up a publisher with extensive game experience. And of course, EA was mentioned. If you remember way back when, earlier in the year, EA was also mentioned as a potential Amazon acquisition. Not only did Amazon go after EA potentially, but Embassy Universal was also potentially looking at buying the company, but those plans fell apart. Jen, licensing, uh, that's a thing. You get a cut of the revenue. I assume that if you start to move to internal development, if you bought someone like Yay, the cost-benefit analysis that you internalize the license fee? Is that all there is to it? Is it simple as that? Oh, this is such a big topic. Like you said, this goes to like just such the circle of pain that I see being in the game industry, going from licensing to let's buy a bunch of studios, back to licensing. By the way, when I say studio here, I'm meeting, you know, legacy media companies. 
So let me just do a little Wayback Machine, you know, history of the pain that I went through even at Disney. And you can talk to Chris Heatherly about the pain that he went through at NBC Universal. So when I was at Disney back in the, the 2000s, I lived through the era where we acquired the studio who made Turok and also Avalanche, by the way, in Salt Lake, who just killed it on another licensed property at another legacy media studio called Harry Potter Hogwarts Legacy. So congrats to those folks. And that's an example of it going well, which will change the strategy for that company because they did well. But when I was at Disney, we had Disney Interactive who did a Tron game that kind of flopped. But the thing that did do well was Kingdom Hearts, which was a license with Square Enix. And so that was a wave of, hey, let's buy studios. Ooh, it didn't work. It didn't work. What happens is they realize that the investment needed, the time it takes, and ultimately the return, which is very risky, is not conducive to an environment of quarterly earnings where you need to deliver predictable results. And so this is the entire problem of legacy media companies buying studios is it is not a fit with the business model. Let me just even tell a little baby story about being on Farmville. This is so long ago, hopefully no one cares. But at the end of a quarter, I was at Zynga when it was public. They said, hey guys on Farmville, you guys need to run a sale. Even though we know it's gonna tank numbers for next quarter, we have to hit these numbers. You need to go ahead and run a sale. And so those are just examples of business decision outweighing what's great for players or what's great for the overall business. Now, looking at Netflix, Apple, Amazon, these are the companies that you can hide these numbers. You can go and buy these studios, hide the numbers in there. And so you won't actually swing numbers quite as much. So, you know, Heatherly took a swing at this at NBC Universal. He was starting studios. He had a whole plan. You know, they didn't have success with their first game. And quickly they pulled the rug out from under them and now they do licensing, right? Like they've gone to the licensing model. Disney is still predominantly a licensing model where they just open up their IP to everyone. I think licensing model is the right way to go for these kinds of companies because of those business constraints. Chris, how did I do? Do you think I'm crazy? No, no, no. I think you're only touching the surface of why these type of deals don't work because the fact is the priorities of these organizations are not gaming. Their priorities are movies and television and you can't get the resources required. And this is exactly what's happening with Netflix right now is that no one gives a shit about gaming, right? So they're not promoting gaming, right? Because what are they promoting? They're promoting their series. They're promoting their deals that they've done with other studios and stuff on TV and movies, right? But this question about Disney acquiring EA, I have been answering this motherfucking question for 25 goddamn years. <laughs> it's like really annoying, right? Until recently, I actually may be changing my view, right? With this Microsoft deal closing, this opens up the possibility of EA actually getting acquired. Do I think it's good for EA and, and its IP and for gamers? Probably not. But, but it is possible. And historically, what I've said is that EA is fiercely independent. And the biggest point is they can drive shareholder value by being a standalone company much more than they would be as part of NBC Universal or Disney, right? Game makers generally do not want to work for Disney because Disney is a shitty place to work for game makers, right? That's the full stop, right? And anybody you ask will tell you this. This is not a great environment for game people, right? Again, the other point I would make is that all value would be sucked dry of EA. A media conglomerate doesn't give a shit about Madden, doesn't give a shit about new game development. It's not a priority for their business. And then finally, once something like this would be acquired, all the key personnel would leave. You know, you think Vince Zampella is going to stick around and work for fucking Bob Iger? Come on, man. Like, no fucking way. He's going to go up and do his own shit, you know? So it's like all these guys would be bounced, right? But now that this acquisition's happened, it's possible for EA in particular. Andrew has some aspirations to be a CEO of a media company, I've been told, which is crazy, but that's what he would do. Could you imagine that Bob Iger might do some kind of crazy succession planning, right? And put him in charge of Disney? <laughs> that's hilarious. I, I, can't even, I, I can't even say it. I just threw up on my mouth a little bit. So it's possible, right? But the problem with Disney right now is they are on their ass. Like nothing is working for them. The subscription service is a fucking disaster. Star Wars is shit right now. Marvel Universe is actually falling off dramatically. The stock is like at an all-time low or 10-year low. And it has about $50 billion in debt. 
you know, EA would be a $50 billion acquisition, most likely. Disney's market cap is only $106 million, right? They can't absorb something like this. Full stop, right? So stop talking about it until it's actually realistically going to happen, right? It's just not possible financially. Anybody should know this if they have any finance sense whatsoever. But fundamentally, even if it was possible, and even if Disney wasn't on its ass right now, I still think this would ultimately destroy EA. The same way I think that this Microsoft deal is likely going to destroy Activision, ultimately. I, I will say this. There's a nuanced difference. Obviously, Microsoft cares about gaming in the sense that they have a gaming business, right? The Disney thing is just not succinct at all. So. Yeah. What are they going to kill in EA? What is there to kill? I mean, it's not like there's this glistening culture that they're going to kill. Disney knows how to manage creatives. What is it that would kill EA? Just being in Disney? Disney's getting out of sports, right? They have ESPN, ABC. All of those things are up for sale. So one of the reasons why people thought this would be a thing is like, oh my God, EA Sports, ESPN, put that together, make a sports division that's like transmedia and it can live there. But Disney is going back to its roots, I guess you could say, which is kind of weird because it was in making movies. It's in making movies and having parks. If you look at where they're investing billions of dollars, it's all in the parks because that's the only part of the business that is still kind of going up. So that was the only way people thought like, oh, like those two things could come together. The rest of the games division and pressure, right? Like I think The Sims lives, but like all of that other stuff goes away. Maybe they make Star Wars games, but they've already licensed out the rest of the Star Wars IP to Ubisoft and all of these other people. So I don't know that whole, you know, they split it into two divisions. EA can probably say goodbye to the everything else but sports and The Sims. Games are not a quick fix. If they'd be looking at this to solve a, a short-term problem to get revenue up, if they're struggling financially, that's not games. They're expensive. They're risky. We're like R&D. Put us in the corner. Let us work for two to four years, and then we'll release something. But like that, I think, ends up killing creatives. They would rather allocate that money on a show that takes like a year to develop than it does take a four-year development time for a game. Well, first of all, they're still building rides, which have large capital costs and take years to develop. But if we go back to the Walt Disney map, the infamous IP Walt Disney map, where he has all the different media properties, you know, pointing arrows to one another. If Disney is an entertainment company, how can you not be in games? How can you not have that as a part of your strategy? That seems crazy to me. Licensing. They, they are just not internal. That's the argument everyone makes on this. Like, it's super obvious that they should be in games that it doesn't even make sense that they're not right. The problem is on the execution side, everyone's failed. You know, Fox, NBC, Disney's failed twice, right? They acquired a gajillion companies and failed fucking miserably, right? And shut them all down, right? And so, like, there's been no successful media company that's actually acquired gaming. And the reason is that the priorities are not there. The powers that be are all in film and television. They're not allocating budgets, hundreds of millions of dollars to build a game when they could be building like a couple movies, you know? I mean, and I think this is happening with Warner right now. And like, it's a nightmare, fucking nightmare, right? That makes sense to me, but that to me is a barrier to overcome. We really take those time use surveys seriously. And if gaming is really eating up entertainment as a share, if it's starting to eat away from movies and it's starting to eat away from TVs, how can you not be sweating bullets if you're Bob Iger? Don't you understand that these people are pure narcissists, right? These are like megalomaniac narcissists, right? They're in their own world right now, particularly people in media. Like, there's no way they're capitulating to the idea that they're no longer the king of the hills. They see the idea and they try to execute it, but when it comes down to execution, it's like, no, they're not giving up the keys to the kingdom, you know? It's never going to happen. Not in my lifetime. If you're in charge of Disney, though, would you not want to be in games? 100%. Yeah, license it. Or make it a five to 10 year plan. No, it's the head of licenses. It's the head of Star Wars, the head of Marvel. It's like all these like absolute arrogant, narcissistic medical maniacs are not giving up their IP, you know? And I have a million stories about like how this has gone on over the years. It's, it's a disaster. Like LucasArts is like the most obvious motherfucking place you would want to work to build games for Star Wars, right? How much more perfect can the world be? to do that, right? You ask anybody that worked at that place, it was a fucking nightmare. It was a nightmare for years, a disaster of epic proportions. Like it was awful, right? Because they don't value this shit, you know? So do you guys know the term slicensing? I think we've talked about this before, but 
So Marvel are the masters of licensing, which is dividing up your licenses amongst everyone and anyone who wants to make a game with your brand. That's why Marvel has like two CCGs. Like people don't remember, but there was that other CCG when Marvel Snap came out. Battle Lines or something, Onslaught, something like that. I, I, I don't yeah. remember the name of it, but the thing is with the licensing model, which is the most beautiful model in the world because it is low risk and you can get experts in each one of the divisions and the genres in the entire industry to go out and make games with your IP, the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. If you're a licensee, you're pissed because you have to compete with the 10 other Marvel games that are coming out that all look like your game because it's the same characters. But if you're a Marvel, you're like all of my boats rose because I have been able to at the same time activate five, eight different game manufacturers to go out and make games on my behalf. I give them my IP. I just need an army of people approving the stuff, giving them some assets, maybe doing some internal synergy integrations to help them market it. But that is what they should be doubling down is, is, is giving the internal teams to allow folks to go and license the bit. Having done this and been at Disney as a licensor, you know, this is just the beauty of the model. You just have to be really good at trying to predict what your licensees are going to make so that we can put that number in your system. And you're just a facilitator of what that is. That's, I think, the winning strategy for these companies. And maybe that's controversial and not as exciting, especially because Transmedia is now working. Last of Us, Mario, all of these other things. Everyone's like, oh my God, Transmedia, get the companies back in. I'm not sure that's the solution. The solution is let the experts who know how to make these games, who are super smart and creative, let the best people make the product, just give them the tools to be able to do that. They don't need to be inside the media company to do it. All done. <laughs> all right. See you guys next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.